This time of year, of course, uh, some people are on holidays. Uh, there's uh, another bout of COVID going around, so um, we haven't heard about that one for a while, have we? Uh, anyway, God is with us, and we have to deal with whatever situation we, uh, we are confronted with. And that's what life is like, isn't it? And sometimes I think I prefer to, rather than be overly positive or overly negative, whatever, it's, I live somewhere in the tension. I call it living with the tension. So I want to share with you this morning's message with that title, Living with the Tension. We are at the start of a, a new year, 2024, year of our Lord. Same church, but in a new location. Our church stands as a, as a testament of the, the faith of those who, who built it and those who came in the years before, came to the regular services and served in the different ministries over the years who worked tirelessly to keep the church open and alive and active. But lest we forget, it is a, it is a symbol, it is, it's, it is here, not primarily because of the strength of those who have come before or contributed, but of the presence of God in our midst who has enabled them to do what they did for his glory. It is he who we serve and who has made all of this possible. He is the one that has opened the way for us. So this morning on the, on the occasion of our first service in this new location, I want to discuss about four important tensions or challenges that always keep our faith on our toes. This is applicable to individuals, families and the church. The first tension is between old and new. The tension between old and new. This is a favourite one, of course. If you've been around churches for a while. Jesus once said, Therefore, Every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. That's from Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. Now this short statement is a bit of a, a signature statement from, from Matthew's gospel. He was giving us a hint about who Jesus was and in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is presented as the Messiah of Israel. Jesus, as the Messiah, was deeply rooted in in the traditions of Israel, faithful to them, fulfilling them. But at the same time, he wasn't stuck to those traditions. He was always bringing something new. And this distinction between old and new is something which troubles both the world we live in today and, of course, the church. Have you noticed how some products are advertised in quite contradictory ways? So these people, they got a product to sell and they go to the, you know, the people that make ads, the advertising companies, and they come up with different suggestions as to how best to 
market the product. Sometimes they're encouraging us to buy something new because it's new, the latest thing. You've never seen anything like it before. It's the latest technology. And sometimes we're encouraged to buy something because it's just like the way things used to be, just like grandma's kitchen. We want a new improved formula for washing powder, but old traditional coffee and cookies and cakes. It's a mixed up world, you see. Some call it post-modernity, others call it retro. We can't decide whether old or new is best. And when it comes to music in the church, we often divide ourselves up, we divide ourselves up according to whether we like traditional hymns or new worship songs, a church with old pews or new chairs, polished floors or new carpet, sing a new song to the Lord or tell the old, old story. And at times I think we we tend to marginalise each other by getting rid of the old for the sake of the new or simply do away with the new in order to keep the old order of the old. Remember that the old people today were once young. Right? You were the radicals, used to wear your flared pants and your your flowery shirts and all of that. You remember those days, or you'll try to forget, I suppose. And young people today, let me just remind you that one day you will too, you too will be old. I was once young. Look at me now. Sad, isn't it? You, you can either be sad or you can say, well, you've survived this long fall with, with your life, your crumbled life, and, and it's a miracle you're still here. See, the young people today will start to appreciate a hymn like, you know, Abide With Me and Sing Change and Decay in All Around I See. It's the journey of life, isn't it? Especially when your dentist reminds you there's decay in your teeth, right? Jesus said, when we are disciples of the kingdom, we are like those who have, we have got to get used to, to listening both the old and the new in the sense that we need to apply it to our generation. God's laws don't change but they need to be applied and taught in the current environment, in the current language. It is tempting always to find, to identify with the traditional or among the fashionable. We tend to swing one to the other. But you see, these distinctions that we like to make, the Bible is always constantly challenging us challenging our faith. 
Jesus, for example, he promised a new commandment to love one another. But it wasn't new in the, in the sense that nobody had ever spoken about this before because it, is, it actually comes from the Old Testament, the commandment to love your neighbour. The thing is that in the Old Testament it was about loving your, your, your people, the, those of your own, your own nationality, your own tribe. Jesus says, no, we have to love everybody, especially in the context of a church, people of different nationalities. You actually have to love even your enemies. And this is the example that we are to set and this will be a witness to the world. Look at how they love one another. And the Apostle Paul declared that if we are in Christ, we are an old creation. Isn't that what he said? No, he said we are a new creation. You have to get ready for the new. Of course, when he, when he said we are a new creation, it's, it's actually another way of saying that we are actually restored to what God always intended us to be before the fall. It, it, to make us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, the last Adam. There's always, of course, the tension between staying or advancing, the tension between staying or advancing. This is another principle that we find throughout the scriptures. After creation, the fall, the flood, in Genesis chapter 12, God starts a new chapter in history by calling, by appearing to a pagan in a land far, far away and calls him to a journey of faith. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And from there on we see a, a good number of promises made by God to him and to his descendants not all at once, not all the promises at once, but he, he kept these promises along the journey in, in regular intervals just to keep encouraging him to keep going. And wherever these encounters happened, he built an altar to the Lord. These were significant because they were reminders of God's promises. The old promises but a new element with each promise to encourage him to go on. Do not give up. And so these, these altars were reminders of the encounters between God and the man that he called. A memorial, as it were. Not only reminded him of God, the, God's promise, but also reminded him of the importance of trusting in those promises. Because sometimes when the promise is a little bit delayed, we get impatient. Lord, you said 
Yeah, the Lord said, but he didn't say how long it was going to take to get there. Like many of us, a few times Abraham had a difficult time fully trusting in God's promises. One, because of the delay, and others because of the challenge of the situation, of the present. At one time, he left the promised land, went into Egypt, had to lie and all of that. At another time, he had to hurry God up and the whole descendant thing and had a child with Sarah's servant. He couldn't wait. Despite all this, despite his doubts, he's still called a man of faith, a friend of God. Promises, you see, by their very nature, involve trust and faith. Faithful people, the righteous ones, are called to live by faith. They are called to live according to God's promises. And with the pain and the trials you face along the journey, you can choose to quit, give up or keep going. Either way, it's going to hurt. If you quit, it's going to hurt. You know that. If you keep going, it's going to hurt, but at least you're going. You cannot avoid the pain. But the thing is that if you stop and not go anywhere, you're you're outside of God's will if you just give up. Many have given up on the faith. They call it the, this, the age of apostasy. I've given up on God, they say. I used to go to church. I used to read the Bible. Well, why don't you keep going? Oh, the people at church, you know, and God just wasn't there for me. I've heard that one. What did you expect? Santa Claus? That's not the God I worship. One is God's will, the other isn't. Someone said, you can't break God's promises by leaning on them. I like that, by leaning on them. So let's go back to our our first reading, which was the people about to cross into the promised land. But before they cross into the promised land, they... Moses sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go and find out what what it was like. What are the challenges going to be once we move all these people out there? The prize of the milk and honey was there. Yes, it, it is a land. It is a beautiful land, just as God had promised. But there are challenges. There is these really tall people, the giants. And most of them, they didn't... They forgot about the prize. They forgot about the milk and honey and focused on the the challenges, the enemies. And they were terrified. Ten brought back the report that we should stay where we are. Just keep wandering around in the desert on the other side of the promised land. While two said, we can do this. God is with us. Let's advance. And now... Now they're on the brink of 
of crossing over again once and for all. And this is what we read. Go over there, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when you cross the Jordans, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial, a memorial to the people of Israel forever. All those promises when they were in Egypt, all the heartache going through the wilderness, all those generations that had come and gone, they look forward, they were reminded day after day that this is where we're going. Now after 40 years they are finally there, they are on the threshold. And we see 12 men ordered, just like the 12 spies, now we have 12 men ordered to carry 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They represent the patriarchs, the founding families of their nations. And with these stones, they are to build a memorial. Almighty God. Several times in this passage, the question is posed, as it has been asked by, this question is asked by a younger person to an older one. When your children ask you, What do they mean? Isn't that a great opportunity? When your children ask you, and when your children ask you, what do you respond? Go and ask your mother. Go and ask grandpa. No, you should know the answer, right? Isn't that an opportunity to witness to that next generation? What does it mean, Dad? And, and that was an opportunity to, to tell them the story, tell them the old, old story of how God helped us. It's not about their bravery, it's about the God who sustained them, who led them, who fed them. And as time went on, the experience became removed from each passing generation. They were really close, but with each passing generation, they, they stopped telling the story. They, stopped, they started listening to the nations around them and to follow the idols. And what possible example can you give to your child if mum and dad already have an idol in the corner of the house there and God here and said, well, what does that mean, dad? No, that's a divided, divided faith. You're compromised. What possible example can you leave for the next generation? So when our kids do ask us, we need to have an answer, shouldn't we? We have to have an answer about an accountability almost. Our kids are going to hold us accountable as to how we lived our lives because God is. What example have we given? 
And that is why I think the writer, he remarks in verse 19, he says, and they are there to this day. Obviously, at the time of the writer, they are there to this day, a testament to the fact that God fulfills his promise. When we move on to the New Testament, the biggest promise that everyone had been waiting for is, of course, fulfilled in what we just celebrated, the birth of Jesus Christ. But now for us, that was his first coming, now for us, his promise is still with us, he told us that he will come again. Do you still believe that? Or you still, or your life is so comfortable, so beautiful that it doesn't really matter whether he comes or not? Are you eagerly awaiting for the Lord to fulfill his promise? I am. Each aching pain in my body is a reminder. Each difficulty or trial that we face is a reminder, a groaning, Lord, please come. Each new law that they bring out and the stuff through Canberra and, and, and Macquarie Street and all the others about how far removed are, we are from, from what we, from even natural law and the destruction of life in the womb and you're saying, Lord, please come. Do we give up? As we wait for the Lord, will we just sit and wait with a cup of coffee and cookies? Or do we continue the journey, continue the pilgrimage, continue our witness in his strength, in the strength that he gives us? Can you, can you then see the way that God works with us? Someone said, don't ever forget your memories. It's good. I know it's a bit of a struggle when dementia sets in, forgetting our memories. But the, the point, I think, with that saying, don't forget your memories, is don't be selective in your memories. Don't just remember the good times. It's all there. The good and the bad and everything in between. It's part of our memories. Every memory shows an accomplishment of who we are, who we were, the path we have trodden and the hand of God who has been with us along the way. Don't forget the way that God has been faithful to us. If he fulfilled his promises in the past, he's doing that for us in the present and he will in the future. We can trust him. Another tension, the tension between our human nature and holiness this is, of course, the, the perennial struggle that we as believers face. On the one hand, we want to please God, but many times our old nature takes over and we seek to feed and please the flesh because the flesh is the immediate satisfaction. I want it all and I want it now, the song goes. 
The Apostle Paul understood this very well and he wrote about it in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 25. And this, and this, this is a very honest, very honest assessment of his own life. And this is what he says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Then he says this, what a wretched man I am. If somebody was to sit down with the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago and ask him, Paul, are you a good man? What do you think his response would have been? Yeah, I'm alright. Never killed anybody? Well, technically, yes. But anyway, let's not talk about that. I'm a good man. Think he would have said that? Of course not. What he said was, what a wretched man I am. Where's the positive thinking? Where's the positive affirmation, Paul? What, what, are you, what are you saying? What I'm saying is there's no good, nothing good in me. Whatever good is in me is Christ and his work. Who, and, and he says this. He says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He asks the question. Rhetorical question. Who will rescue me from this body? And then straight away he gives the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. The tension. The struggle is real. And we can't, obviously we can't let guilt take over because that will just paralyze us and pull us out of the fight because of the guilty conscience. That's a tension. And then, nor should we allow God's gracious willingness to forgive our sins to lull us into this callous apathy, feeling like we we can go on sinning and presume on God's grace. Don't do that either. And I love this story. I've told it a few times before. The story is, of course, of John Newton, who by this stage, he was an old man. He was a slave trader. Then he became a preacher. And now he is in his dying days, and as was his tradition, he was blind now. He couldn't see. He couldn't read the scriptures. Somebody read the scriptures. And and the reading for that morning of his devotions was... uh, a very special passage which was 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, I am what I am. And so he proceeded then to make a commentary and somebody wrote it down, the commentary that John Newton made. And he said, and I quote, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. 
Soon, soon I shall put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, they are not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be. I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. How great is that? Beautiful, isn't it? And finally, the tension between oppression and triumph. The tension between oppression and triumph. And this, I think, hits us not just what has happened in the past, but also the present and where we are going as a society into the future. Interestingly, interestingly, the, the, the book of Hebrews holds out two contrasting views of faith as well. There is a tension if you read in, in Hebrews. One is filled with triumph and victory, while the other is filled with stories of oppression, of suffering and shame. And it is in the midst of these two realities that the people of God, that's us, and it's been people come before us, and it will be what will be in the future. This is where we live. This is where we live our lives. And I will read two, two passages from Hebrews. This one comes, the first one comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. Remember, and the, the author of Hebrews is calling them to remember. Remember those early days after you had received the light, or when they became Christians, that is, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what? What? What he has promised. And then again, that's from Hebrews 10, and then again. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves and holes and ground. 
These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. The suffering is common to both. And the journey continues. And the witness is there. My brothers and sisters, we now live in a time when the people of the Christian faith are becoming a minority. This is something to, to accept and it is certainly closer to what the early church had to go through. And, and while we physically meet as a church here, it's easy to be a witness for the Lord here in song and to hear his word while we have this freedom to do so. But you already know the challenges in the workplace, in society, with your neighbours. You know that that's where the battle is really fought. You might lose your job if you tell them that you disagree with the company's policy. What will you do? And I think on the occasion of our new location, we must never forget that when we talk about the faith of our fathers and mothers and grandfathers, it is actually their faith we hold up. Because when I look, you know, a little bit closer with a microscope, they weren't perfect people. They had their flaws. I, I, I respect them for, for their example. But the most important thing for me was the God that they worshipped. Their faith was real despite their ups and downs. Like the people mentioned in Hebrews, I would hope that we remember them for their ability to rise in faithfulness to the challenges that came their way. Maintain their integrity. They went and fought the wars and came back and continued to believe in God. They built a place like this and, and they continued to be a witness in the community. They're no longer with us, but the, their memory is and the witness that they left us. And the next chapter, we've read chapter 10, we've read chapter 11 of Hebrews, and then in chapter 12, this is what we read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a, a great cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. We have the, the cloud of witnesses. We are surrounded by them. They have given us the impetus, the, I don't know, the, the trampoline to, to jump. But they are no longer with us. Now this is our race. We have to run. We have to persevere. Do we look at them? No, we look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer. He is the one that went before us. He is the perfecter who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He could see this. He could see us. And he looks beyond this. He could see us in his presence. Disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners. Why? Why all of this? So that you may not grow weary or lose heart. Grow weary and lose heart. If the Lord does not return yet, wouldn't it be wonderful if the people could look back at us, at what we did, and give thanks to God for the spirit of love and life and hope that lives in each of us. The Lord doesn't return that generations that go after us may look back and say, what a wonderful witness they left. What can we learn from them? That they may not praise us as much as they praise the God who called us, who enabled us, who led us, who, who gave us the Holy Spirit to do what we are called to do. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in reading the history of the church in the next hundred years, they could see in us a people who made a decision to trust God's promises people who wholeheartedly believed and declared and told people about their faith in God. What a challenge we have, right? May God bless us as we continue to live for him in the years ahead. Amen. All right, let's stand together. We're going to sing.